I'm Kevin McDermott, and this is the Faculty Profile Podcast. My guest on our very first episode uh, is Sean Coco, Professor of History here at Trinity College. Thanks for being here, Sean. Thanks for having me. It's uh, It has been a little time coming, getting everything together. I know you've had a very busy last year in addition to all of your teaching and faculty responsibilities, you were on the committee to select our new president. Yeah, we were very excited by the outcome. It's a year-long process that began, in fact, uh, in last summer, mm -hmm. uh, at the tail end of the summer when I was contacted by the chair of the search committee, uh, the chairman of the board of the um, trustees, uh, Courtney Thunder. Okay, newly na appointed. Newly, newly named, appointed, yeah. actually in appointed. transition. Okay. Um, and that folded me into a, a year-long and very exciting process where, you know, I got to see the different parts of the college working together towards a, a common goal, which was hiring a new president that would lead us uh, in the next 10 years yeah. towards... Um, a bicentennial and uh, a transformation that we that will turn us into a 21st century institution. Yeah. And so on that search committee, there's yourself and a couple of other faculty members as That's well? That's correct. There were two other faculty members yeah. um, from the sciences, Susan Messino and Craig Schneider. Yeah. So um, you guys, along with head of the board of trustees, a uh, couple of other representatives from campus, I mean, literally reviewed hundreds of applications and resumes, CVs from yeah. all around the world and, and Yeah, the there is a, you can imagine, um, there was a phase where we solicited um, nominations. So yeah. you can imagine the range of people, um, both outstanding and then, of course, marginal that might have been nominated for such a position. So we were fortunate enough to have a, a, um, a search firm that helped sort of weed through um, you know, a sea of nominations and select a very selective pool of 50-odd um, candidates who were then part of a much more extensive review that began with looking, of course, at their candidate materials and trying to understand who they were as yeah. leaders, as people. And they came from a very wide range of uh, disciplines within the academy, but also people outside of the academy, so from nonprofit environments and so forth. So then a, f a group of finalists is brought to campus. What was it about Joanne, uh, our president, Joanne Berger-Sweeney, that really stuck out for you and, uh, you know, personally resonated with you as the kind of, this is the leader for the college? Well, she stood out um, from the outset, and I think uh, certainly the, the, th the two faculty colleagues I worked with most closely, we, we felt that from, from the outset. And she's a, an accomplished, world-known scientist. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, as faculty members, we were, we were drawn to someone who had um, done our kind of work and had done it at a very high level. Um, and then as we moved deeper into the process and you begin to understand and get a fuller sense of a person as a leader and as someone who interacts with the different parts of the college, which, of course, are not just the faculty, but are alumni and students and administration, we found her to be tremendously ambitious, which mm -hmm. appealed to us, um, someone with a vision for uh, what our institution could be in the 21st century, um, and someone who also understood what we are and and spoke at length and in many occasions about um, taking what we are and and making that 
something relevant in the 21st century. So. And for those who might not be aware, listening, uh, President Berger Sweeney came from Tufts University, a fellow NESCAC school, peer institution. So she had a feel for liberal arts colleges and, and kind of what the specific demands are. It's an incredibly challenging job. I mean, the, the criteria for successful collegiate university president, you have to interact with faculty, you have to interact with students, you have to recruit new students, you have to fundraise, you have to, I mean, it's just the myriad of responsibilities is just overwhelming, it seems. You have to be CEO and faculty member uh, and lead the college. It's a daunting task, it seems. Yeah, I I came away in in one one respect saying, wow, who would want to take on such a job? And and I returned to to the ambition, but a very... Mm -hmm humane ambition, someone who had, uh, as you said, come from a liberal arts environment, had also taught at Wellesley Mm -hmm. um, for a long time and had built a career um, in that kind of an environment, had led faculty, had, as a dean, um, undertaken a lot of the other roles as well, including fundraising. So someone who had walked the walk already Mm -hmm. and uh, was drawn to the multivalent kind of you know, position that you occupy as a president, doing so many things, including being the face of an institution. Um, And, yeah. Well, very early on in her tenure, she's already put a great mark on it, and I know has touched everybody that she's met with her candor, her warmth, and her vision. So it's a great start to her tenure, and I really look forward to seeing how the school changes and the how her vision kind of manifests in the next few years. So That's a great way to Thank you for it. your work on that committee, Sean. Oh, thank great. you. Thank um, you. So segueing kind of to your experience, you do not come from a small liberal arts institution. You, you've been at Trinity since 05. That's correct. But came from University of Washington. That's right. So 45,000 students, roughly, major research university. What brought you to Trinity? How, how did you kind of find Trinity, and what was the transition from that huge institution to small liberal arts college like? That's a great question. Um, it, it was always something in my mind as I uh, undertook the road to become a professor and you know, uh, began doctoral study. And, but um, I had um, grown and thrived in an environment that was, as you describe, a very large ecosystem, you know, 50,000 plus some students, 20,000 faculty and graduate students, programs, um, everything from astrophysics to, you know, the leading medical school in the country. And so um, I had I'd spent um, many years in that kind of, um, you know, again, environment, but I had always felt that for my profession, what would be the balance I wanted to strike, what I had set out to do, was to be a scholar and a teacher. And certainly, liberal arts institutions like Trinity College represent um, that that facet of the profession, um, a, a balance between being someone who is active in the world of scholarship, but who's also dedicated to uh, what I guess I would call an intimate learning, working closely with students. And so when this opportunity came up, um, I was ready to recognize it for what it was, and it was one of the best jobs in the country in the year that I had finished my doctorate and began the the often arduous journey of finding a tenure-track position, which, of course, everyone tells you before you start graduate school you're not going to get, and yeah. so you better be ready 
for that. So it's a... Um, and you feel the balance is, for, for those at larger institutions, less towards individual work with students when you become, you know, full faculty member right. at the larger institutions? It's, it's far more geared away from classroom work? Yeah, I think it's a question of degree yeah. that um, certainly the people that trained me as a historian and as, and as, really as a teacher uh, within that different system were people who also struck a rich balance. But um, I guess I would say that the extent to which you're able to craft your own courses, uh, the size of those courses, mm-hmm. um, and in some respects the higher teaching load, which then requires you to mobilize more of your energy in that direction means that 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 structures and shapes your your career in important ways and i think um, we all do that in some ways and um, whatever institution you teach at um, but i think here there is a particularly rich kind of reiterative um, relationship between what you teach in the classroom and then as you walk away from that class um, and you carve out time to do your work what you've worked through and rehearsed in the classroom gets, you know, put back into your work and back out. And I think everyone does that. So I think it happens in all sorts of institutions. But the demands here, I think, the the teaching demands and the expectation that you be an outstanding teacher mobilize those energies in particular ways. Hmm. When did the professor track as career hmm. manifest? You mentioned earlier as you go in, you know, to your PhD programs that the uh, prospects of finding a tenure track position might be kind of grim or undersold. Was it when you were an undergrad or in your master's program, PhD program, when did you say, professor, that's where I'm heading? Uh, I think there's a series of stages. I mean, one of them is uh, probably very personal that when I was a boy, I was eight years old, uh, I came to America. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that from, from Italy, from Italy, from where Italy. I was born. What part of Italy? I was born in the south of Italy in Puglia, mm-hmm. on the heel of the boot, in a um, very ancient city called Brindisi, a port yeah. city uh, on the Adriatic Sea. So when I came as a boy, I, uh, I mean, I think I, I longed for where I had come from, and so the way I found to go back. I mean, I was fortunate enough to return physically in the summers on a, after a certain age. Um, and then once I began college, I was able to study a year in Italy. And I had the language, of course, because it was my native language. But, um, it, you know, studying history became a kind of road back. Um, I had a reason to think about where I had come from to go back. And so in some respects, I think that road was set long long before. Certainly when I was an undergraduate, I found that I enjoyed the discipline of history, and I thought in ways that... Were your, um, were your first loves Roman, Greek history, Roman Greek influence history. on yes. Southern Italy, and your, yeah. Right, I mean, there were the places I, I, yeah, I came from, so, yeah. you know, it was whether it was the fact that my hometown was the terminus of the Appian Way, so the Roman road that uh, led uh, led to the south, uh, and there's a very famous column that marked the end of it. Um, but layers, you know, layers mm-hmm. upon layers. My, the part of Italy I come from was ruled by the Spanish for 
nearly two centuries, and mm. that presence is left in the last names and in the dialect and in the words, and um, even in the cuisine, um, things like paella, um, or there are variants of that that are holdovers um, of that you know, kind of Spanish colonial period. So I had grown up with a sense of you know those layers, and that, that has shaped how I think about history um, in even in my own profession. I'm very interested in landscape, um, in the superimposition of different moments in time and how people interact with those different, uh, you know, vestiges of earlier periods. And if you come from a part of the world where those layers are, um, you know, in many cases still preserved, mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think, you know, of course, cultures all around the world have that depth to them. But um, I came in a place where those things, I could see them yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. And you mentioned going back to Italy. You're talking and referencing just travel back personally with family and to visit relatives back over there? To see my father. Yeah. My, my father remained in Italy. Okay. And my, my mother moved to America. So uh, I would return to, to see my, my Italian family. So I, I, I lived with sort of two families on different sides of the yeah. Atlantic, and I was able to you know, remain a, a fixture of an Italian family, even though, you know, I saw them once a year or even more sparsely than that. Yeah. And then coming when you were eight, moved to a somewhat unusual spot. Uh, to tell us a little bit about, uh, you lived on an island. I yeah, not a, yeah, not a conventional route. Okay. Um, yes, I, uh, I then moved to an island off the coast of the Pacific Northwest um, in the San Juan Islands, which are near the border with Canada, south of Vancouver Island, if you want to look on the map. And, and not an overly developed place. No, no. The island um, I, uh, I grew up on, Shaw Island, uh, had a uh, population of about 180 people and had mm-hmm. a one-room school. Um, so it was a pretty rural setting. Um, you know, my, uh, I almost lived in a teepee for a while. That's mm-hmm. a, um, fortunately, that You avoided the teepee, I though? avoided the teepee, avoid, okay. yeah. Um, but it was uh, definitely a different world. My my American family were salmon fishermen uh, that fished salmon in the traditional way of the um, of the tribes of the Pacific Northwest. It's called reef netting, and mm-hmm. it's a static fish salmon trap set out that um, uh, picks up the the annual migrations of various kinds of salmon, the sockeye and the king and the coho, uh, and then are uh, you know picked up by these nets as they migrate. So, did you do that stuff? I, mean, uh, did I did some summers. Yeah. I did, yeah. It, it was a it was a very uh, it's a very physically demanding. It's not really a, a world for boys. It, it yeah. definitely pulling the nets and being on the tower. Um, the crews of those boats are usually about um, you know four people that do most of the work, and then as I did, you help pull the net. But um, is that is that sort of fishing still going on? Are you aware of the? Yes, yeah, reef netting yeah. still occurs. Um, my family, uh, because of the regulations and problems in the in the collapses of the runs, mm-hmm. um, although they would have argued, uh, basically being squeezing them out of the business. Of course, they were competing with a lot of more active fisheries, yeah. gill netters and purse seiners, mm-hmm. who were able to you know go after the fish rather than wait for them. Yeah, and but, but no electricity. No, uh, no. Uh, for for a good part of my uh, uh, upbringing, yes. I, yeah. I tell people sometimes I grew up in the 19th century. 
um, you know, with uh, kerosene lamps. Yeah. Uh, so if, yeah, yeah. people were burning kerosene in the uh, you know in the 1860s <laughs> and earlier. Yeah. Um, so 2005, our appointed uh, assistant professor at right. Trinity, right. professor of history. Um, what was the transition to Hartford like? Well, like you and your wife both from. Well, uh, where, where is uh, your wife from? Where? My wife was born in Michigan, okay, um, so but Midwest. grew up uh, grew up in the in the Pacific Northwest. She was yeah. from uh, outside of Seattle, so ever since she'd been a kid. So both transitioning to New England, small liberal arts college, pretty pretty easy transition at first, or I mean, there were challenges certainly, yeah. um, but we you know we moved to a community that was is between two large metropolitan centers, you know, Boston and New York, and so. We of course had uh, friends in New York City, so um, we had connections to this part of the world uh, or part of the country already. Uh, changes is certainly you know weather and that forth uh, and so forth. Seattle is a pretty monotonous climate in many respects. It's yeah. uh, gray and rainy a lot of the year. You you learn to thrive in that world, but um, you know to come to a place with distinct seasons, heat and cold, um, that was you know, that was a difference. Um, as I was preparing for this interview and talking to a, a number of uh, undergraduate students, a course that you have taught that kept coming up over and over again is your course on Galileo. Mm. Um, what and and the the students um, echoed, I think, almost unanimously, just your passion mm. for the subject matter. That's you know you spoke earlier about how uh, connected you are to the classroom environment. What is it about Galileo that that gets you going? Like, what what uh, what attracted you, you to that subject? Well, I'm a, a historian of of uh, early modern science, so I have um, you know a, a broad interest in the origins of of modern science. But what draws me particularly to the story of of Galileo? I mean, I could think I could say it in 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 two ways. Um, one, I am I would say moved by um, his encounter with the moon in 1610 when as a relatively frustrated professor of mathematics who had really not gone very far with his career but who had been lucky enough and smart enough to um, wield the news of a new instrument uh, what was called then a spyglass that had taken two lenses, a convex and a concave lens, and put them about a foot apart and increase magnification. And he'd been fortunate enough, he's teaching outside of Venice, to hear this news and kind of fumble around with creating a better instrument. And then uh, in the winter of 1609, going into 1610, turned it to the sky and saw some remarkable things and recorded them in, again, I would find really sort of deeply moving ways. I'm really pulled by imagination and inspiration. And um, he sketched uh, the moon as it was first seen through the telescope and mm -hmm. realized that really the kind of structure of, of standing theory, the way people understood really about the, about the cosmos, the relationship between the earth and the heavens was fundamentally flawed. And he saw it, you know, on a, on a winter night. Um, he saw two little points of light and then three and then four going around Jupiter, which is the third brightest object in the heavens and people had seen for thousands and thousands of years. And he saw it differently, you know, on those nights and understood that, in fact, there were four little planets and 
the moons of Jupiter going around. And so I'm really moved by that moment of discovery. Mm -hmm. And then I'm moved by the human story of someone who in other ways was very flawed, cantankerous, brilliant, talented, um, quarrelsome person who you know spiraled into controversy. And of course, the reaction from mainly the church to his observations and the kind of the notion that things are not as they have been explained mm -hmm. to us before. You know, that's kind of, I think, the most famous mm -hmm. element of the story that is most well-known. Um, but his, I mean, it's not, you wouldn't classify it as martyrdom uh, against the church, or uh, might you? Or I, No, it, it, it actually explicitly wasn't, and it's a, it's a great point that you make, is that Galileo was part of a generation and would have known this very intimately, that... Um, in 1600, in February of 1600, another very troubled and imaginative, stunning thinker, someone in many respects much more daring, and, and again, I would say troubled than Galileo, Giordano Bruno, who had been a Dominican friar, who had, um, you know, you can imagine, trained within the system, but then fled it and spent part of his life on the run, and had imagined such things as an infinite universe and a sun-centered universe, had been burned at the stake for... Uh, a series of heretical beliefs, and Galileo um, deliberately steered away from that path. And of course, when he was finally condemned in 1633, he was he was condemned. He received a serious charge, but he mm -hmm. was that condemnation was almost immediately lessened, and Galileo was in many respects spared. So he he knew, and as anyone in his time doing his work would have known, the story of this tragic precedent. So he, he worked carefully around it. And the question I raised to my students, and it's very interesting often the conclusion they come to, was Galileo to blame for the disastrous outcome in 1633 of what had been a promise 23 years earlier in 1610 that he would reshape the understanding of the heavens, in conjunction with many others, of course, mm -hmm. that in many respects were more important in his time, like Kepler. Um, and it's a it's a story that really has a human component to it of missteps on everyone's part. Galileo's early observations were received very warmly. Um, he received approval that what he had seen in the moon was possibly true, that he had actually seen these little points of light going around Jupiter. He received confirmation from the church almost immediately. But over the course of 20-odd years, um, events took unexpected turns, which is one of the things I love studying about, you know, yeah. I love about studying history is, is understanding the contingency of events. So at the end, is it unfulfilled, like the promise you're saying of his uh, kind of reforming of how people thought about the heavens and mm -hmm. celestial bodies? That... It was in his, in, in, in many respects, in his lifetime, he uh, was maybe by his own fault, but also because of the controversy that others um, threw him into, that much of what he did after those moments of brilliant observations, kind of inspiration, was to, in many respects, spiral into a world of controversy. And that profoundly probably shaped his science. But Galileo at heart was a physicist and wanted to unify the physics of nature, wanted to erase the distinction between what happened here on earth and what happened in the heavens. And he was never able to do that. He didn't have the math to do it. He mm. was limited in that way. He didn't have calculus. He worked with algebra and geometry. And that was accomplished by Newton mm -hmm. 
yeah. uh, at the end of the 17th century. So he, he was... Was Galileo ultimately under house arrest or was he under, like, I mean, there was some punishment for what he was publishing or what he kind of pr- uh, proposed at least, right? Or is well, this that... is one of the largest kind of misconceptions. He was sentenced very severely, but in fact, within two days of his sentence, uh, already he was allowed to travel uh, he was then allowed essentially to retire quietly hmm. into the countryside. And what's, of course, historian science know, but tend to kind of get get forgotten, is that he wrote. He began writing right away again, and in 1638 he wrote probably his best book on physics, um, loosely uh, remembered as the two sciences in English, where he returned to physics and to motion, mm-hmm. um, and he didn't quite get to what Newton eventually got to. But I um, always highlight to my students that there's a quiet and stubborn and meaningful defiance in returning to that work because he had been condemned for, uh, there were many aspects to his condemnation, but two had been that he had uh, held the belief and defended the belief that the earth was in motion and it had two motions, its annual and its daily motion around its axis, and that the sun was immobile. Mm -hmm. So by returning to physics and to motion, even though he abandoned astronomy, he was talking about movement. Hmm. and um, Under the guise of something yes. separate. Huh, and he was able to get that book out and have it published in Latin. Galileo had published in Italian for the second part of his career in Amsterdam. So he had friends, and people mobilized it. And so the ideas were in circulations. In a sense, he lost the battle, but he won the war. Yeah. And that Galileo course is a course that you've taught a number of times here. Is there a every other year or every just for students i know i honestly that was the one that came up time and time again that people were you know thrilled with their experience amongst other courses that you've taught as well but um every year i teach that one every year yeah Yeah. um now it's usually in the fall Mm -hmm. Uh, i used to teach it in the spring um i'm kind of stuck with one if i teach it in the fall unless i sort of teach it again in the spring but um, for right now it's in a in a fall rotation i guess you're teaching now uh, kind of an unusual and new mm. uh, format to a, a class, Planet Earth, with uh, yourself and two other faculty members. How did that uh, this course kind of come about? Yeah, I haven't been excited as excited about this course since I actually came together with a Galileo course. So this mm-hmm. is uh, a kind of a, a new, exciting turn. It's called Planet Earth, and it was the result of talking with two of my colleagues in the history department, um, Professor Thomas Wickman, who teaches environmental history and colonial period of America, and Professor Kathleen Keat, who's a historian of France and um, intellectual historian and cultural historian of um, 17th and 18th and 19th century France. Um, And she um, and uh, Professor Wickman and I uh, felt that um, we wanted to do a course on world history because students are interested in the world. Um, But we also wanted to pull them back into the past, and especially actually into the deep past, to Mm -hmm. to map um, a series of questions, not just across the kind of the breadth of the planet, but actually back into deep time, time well before history. And as a historian of science and historian of geology, I had a particular interest in in those kinds of coordinates. So the class, uh, for example, begins with uh, comparing creation myths from across the world to contemporary scientific understanding of how the Earth um, formed in the early solar system, uh, 4. roughly 7 
billion years ago. We quickly move, we're historians, so we quickly move into mm-hmm. where we're comfortable, but we would try to get students who across a series of themes, for example, energy. Mm-hmm. So we go from cooking um, to coal and to oil and to nuclear energy. And so what we've really loved about the class is that we walk from a very distant world to one that students live every day. We just mm-hmm. finished a section on uh, discovering the sea underwater. Hmm. On so, I get to teach texts that I find you know I've loved ever since I was a kid, Cousteau and other things. So, it's an exciting collaboration, and we hope it's a new model for teaching together. We students enroll in our respective, they enroll in Planet Earth, and they get one professor, and they meet with us as a separate class twice a week, and then on Friday we come together in what we call a town meeting, mm-hmm. where we air and we. Uh, develop together um, ideas that the, the the distinct sections have worked out, um, and that's been a great format. We we've actually found that we can have great discussions with ninety students because people have been working at it in smaller groups, um, and we get to teach together and show students that you know teaching is also um, thinking through things as you teach. That we're mm-hmm. not just you know a walking Wikipedia. We're anything but that. We're you know, revising our own ideas, making mistakes, working through things. And I think that's, you know, clear to students, we hope. Having the three professor structure, is that is this the first time that it's been offered in such a structure at Trinity, do you know? Or? This structure yeah. in particular, yeah. yes. I mean, people have team taught, but right. we thought that this was a really um, uh, elegant solution mm-hmm. to the problem of getting people to teach together. Yeah. Um, and with three different points of focus Absolutely. from yeah and we're really very different strengths and those come out in discussion yeah in that team uh the town hall forum is one of the professors kind of helping lead the discussion or is it it's all three present in the classroom you know encouraging feedback and encouraging input from the students no it's yeah. uh, all three of us running the show yeah. so it takes a particular uh chemistry i think because we talked about the class for two years uh, argued about the class for two years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, walked away with from each other and came back. You know that that it really works now. Yeah, um, that's wonderful. Um, your you, you've mentioned a couple of times your background in geology and the you know observations of the natural world. That is the focus of your book, published a couple of years ago. Watching Vesuvius. Um, tell us a little bit about the kind of creation of that book um, and how it focuses on the way that ancient, not ancient Italians, but the Italians at the time were observing the volcanic activity and the eruption of, of Vesuvius. Well, there, I mean, a couple ways I came at that, um, that uh, writing that book. Um, one of them is that uh, as a historian, and I think probably for the reasons maybe I've suggested already, I was always connected to a particular place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always tried to kind of imagine a deep slice of where I'm at, to think about the interactions between um, historical events and the places in which they occur. And um, I think historians have in the last decades become better at thinking about many different things. And one of them has been to think about the interaction with the natural world, not as the inert backdrop of human events, but really part of a kind of complex set of interacting domains that 
that that shape uh, our lives. Mm-hmm. And in, of course, in a world where we think about climate change and we we understand that you know the things we do and the world around us are connected. Um, it seemed to me an important insight. So I was especially drawn to the relationship between a kind of catastrophic kind of event. You know, volcanic eruptions are some of the most powerful things humans have ever experienced, and they're you know, totally outside of ordinary experience. Their power completely displaces our own capacity to, to affect them. We can really run from volcanoes is the only thing we can do and probably only will ever be able to do. So I was drawn to the story of what it was like for a huge city for the time. Bef- and before the eruption, uh, j- what was the relationship of, I mean, Pompeii is the most famous, right? Uh, but there are other places impacted by Vesuvius. But right. how did um, the people of Pompeii, what, what did they think of the of Vesuvius? Like, did they have complex understanding of what it represented and how it was actually working in a geologic sense? Uh, well, to, to, to kind of distinguish in two ways, in, in, in Pompeii, so imagine in the Roman period, when uh, Vesuvius erupted in the first century A.D., uh, Romans and Greeks. Which, is that the famous... That's the famous s- eruption. Okay. Yeah. August, and the dust right. or, or ash preserves... Two important cities. Okay, so that's yeah. the first eruption and the most kind of well known or kind of the, the one you would think of. Right, that's okay. the one that, that sealed essentially Pompeii and Herculaneum in uh, okay. in August of 79 AD. Uh, that eruption uh, came at a time when Vesuvius, Vesuvius is a very dangerous volcano. Vesuvius had been dormant for a long, long time. It mm-hmm. had not erupted anywhere in the memory of the Greeks who had colonized that part of southern Italy and the Romans who came after them. So we have few signs of what the Romans thought of it, and they portrayed it as a green cone, uh, the home of Bacchus, the goddess, god of wine. Um, in fact, it was cultivated. Kind of a, a pretty benevolent uh, Yeah, an Arcadian and, image, yeah, yeah. Uh, agricultural. Of course, that all ripped apart uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, August of 79 AD yeah. and buried those towns. Centuries later in the period I study, 1631, the difference was that they remembered that Roman story, they knew about it, but they had forgotten that Vesuvius could erupt again largely. And so when it b- erupted again in the eruption I studied, 1631, um, it uh, reawoke uh, the memory of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which at that point, by the way, no one knew mm-hmm. where they were. They knew that they were somewhere beneath the ground, but they had been buried. Herculaneum was buried in close to 90 feet of pyroclastic uh, material was sealed. Uh, Pompeii was destroyed a little differently, but it also was, um, you know, completely underground. And, w- and these uh, these sites were not recovered until the 18th century. Okay. And and are, were extremely well preserved in some yes, ways. Like, yes, Herculaneum Going better. back to my, you know, very uh, rudimentary, like, I mean, there were frescoes that were uncovered and... Um, like Roman gladiator gear that uh, a Roman pres- yeah sorry go ahead yeah. no a Roman I mean Romans as well of course yeah um, including uh, a soldier and others whose injuries have now been you know described in a kind of paleopathology of or archaeopathology of what hmm. you know they had been yes it was a time capsule yeah that for the 18th century world coming out of the Renaissance and where they've been interested in the classical past you know, awoke uh, a fascination, which had its repercussions in America. If you imagine a early republic 
in the late 18th century coming into being, um, partly envisioning itself as reviving certain Greek ideals of democracy, and that the image of, of the ancient world um, played out um, in American homes as um, you know, people in Philadelphia and New York collected much as the you know Europeans um, on the continent did, mm. um, you know the memorabilia of this sealed past. Mm. Amazing. And is that w- place it in you know geographically from where you grew up? And I know you also have spent time studying in Naples as well, and that's all southern. In the south of Italy, in southern yeah. Italy. Where and where is Vesuvius? Vesuvius is about six miles from Naples. So oh, okay, it is. Uh, Naples is fully within Vesuvius's capacity to destroy. Most of the history. Is histo- that a realistic uh, uh, Geological time scale, it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, in historic time, if humans have been lucky that in the last 8,000 or so years, the eruptions of Vesuvius, though devastating, have not been its the most powerful that it can hmm. generate. In fact, now Italian civil authorities prepare for an eruption similar to the one that happened in 1631, the one I studied, mm-hmm. which was a powerful eruption, but say to compare it to ones perhaps in people's lifetime, less powerful, say the Mount St. Helens. And okay. The Mount St. Helens eruption, for example, was very close to the one of 79 AD. Yeah. So Vesuvius can erupt in various scales. Um, it's most likely to have an eruption that would not destroy all of uh, Naples, but there are close to 3 million people that live within really seconds of a you know volcanic base surge, which is yeah. um, one of the effects of an eruption. And were you in Naples in preparation and study and compilation of this material for their for yes, your book? Yes, years. Yeah. I yeah. mean, back and forth, yeah. but in archives. Yeah, I worked with historical accounts um, in manuscripts and in books at the Vesuvius Observatory, which mm-hmm. is on the mountain, which is probably the most fun experience of writing the book because... Uh, they, I, I tried to convince people that I was a historian, not a volcanologist. So I wasn't there to save them from the volcano. Yeah. I was studying old, bad science about volcanoes, but uh, uh, people refused to kind of believe that. So I got free rides up the mountain, and um, you know, it, there was a lot of respect for the real scientists who were doing the work of monitoring this mountain, so that um, should it awaken again, which it will. Yeah. Um, there will be enough warning to save save hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Yeah. From I mean, Naples is an incredibly huge port it's city. It's a very, very and, complicated. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, my first question was prefaced by uh, kind of the lead-in of your schedule and teaching responsibilities, search schedule. Also, father of three, <laughs> uh, two young twin boys at home. Uh, keeps you busy as well, I'm sure. Yeah, I have a zoo at home. I uh, uh, I have uh, two boys that are going on 19-month twins, yeah, yeah. Um, and then a, uh, a nearly four-year-old daughter who feels like she's going on 15. So, uh, yes, it's a quite a quite a dynamic. Two boys that can throw things and pull things off the wall, but can't speak, and yeah. a daughter who can speak circles around. Uh, uh, well, sometimes she circles around me. Uh, so I find myself using different parts of my brain at different moments. Yeah. All, uh, as I try to corral them. Yes, uh, 
very exciting household. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for taking the time thank to you. come in and speak with me. Uh, thank you to The Mill for letting us use their facility. Producer Eben in the booth uh, for getting us mic'd up and recording the show. And thank you for listening. Check back for more episodes. We're going to be having more conversations. I enjoyed this one with Professor Coco. Hope you enjoyed it as well. So check out the Trinity SoundCloud page for future episodes of the Trinity College Faculty Profile Podcast.